0: Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. In the United States, nearly one out of every 100 people is in prison or jail. Despite making up close to 5% of the global population, the country holds nearly 25% of the world's prison population. And despite making up only 12% of the U.S. population, more than 50% of those incarcerated in the U.S. are people of color. My guest today, Deanna Hoskins, is working to change that. As president of national nonprofit Just Leadership USA, she aims to decarcerate the United States by educating, elevating, and empowering the people and communities most impacted by systemic racism. A nationally recognized leader and very dynamic public speaker, Deanna has been committed to the movement for racial and social justice for more than 20 years, working to drive and sustain policy reform that builds thriving communities. Deanna, welcome to Brand on Purpose.
1: Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. It's quite timely as well. I just want to start by this. I mean, there's so many different places to start. There's one area I want to start, which is really this notion of decarceration and the mission of the organization to decarcerate the United States by half, if I got that correct. Yes. And my question is, what does that mean by when and how?
1: So thank you, Aaron, and thank you for having me here today. Just Leadership, again, as you said, is a national nonprofit that is led by directly impacted people. Our founder, myself, are all formerly incarcerated. We're dedicated to decarcerating the U.S., and we do that by investing in the leadership of formerly incarcerated people across the country to drive systemic change. We know that in this country, nothing happens in specific systems to those most impacted rise up into leadership. When you think about the disability system, mental health system, substance abuse system, it was individuals who were impacted and talked about the lack of resources within those systems that those systems began to transform. I always share in political arenas, criminal justice has been the only system that was not willing to listen to people impacted because we kind of dehumanize them and put this label of inmate, convict, offender, criminal. Right? We were seen as individuals who were actually benefited from what you said jail or prison is supposed to do. You said it is to be accountable for the mistake we made, rehabilitate that we don't dis- demonstrate that behavior again and when they release us they say go out and be successful the problem is society is not that welcoming to an individual with a criminal background so when we talk about decarceration we look at the laws that are actually being utilized to incarcerate substance abuse mental health we know homeless we know in this country that over 7 million people are under some type of correctional control We know 2.1 or 2.3 are currently sitting in prison, but that means 4.5 are on probation or parole in the community. Prior to taking this position, I was employed with the Department of Justice managing their second chance portfolio, which is the federal government investment in corrections and reentry. And one of the things that I discovered from the data was that probation and parole technical violations were a driver of the incarceration rate. What does that mean? I've served my time. I'm released under some type of community supervision, meaning we're going to let you out of prison, Deanna, but we're going to still hold you accountable. You have to report to an officer. You have to get a job. You have to do all these things and follow these conditions. Technical violation means I may have violated one of those conditions, not committed a new crime against society or the community, violated one of those conditions such as Didn't report on time, you know, had a dirty UA, things that should have been solved in the community. But we have seen people go back to prison for years on taxpayers, not because they committed a new crime, because they violated one of these conditions. And when you look at these conditions in every state, they're different. Wisconsin has a condition that you can't even open a bank account without your parole officer permission, you can't buy a car. And believe it or not, as silly as it sounds, there are people are being validated with that. So we're saying, what are the laws on the books that actually could have been utilized with resources in the community? What are the misdemeanor laws that are leading to incarceration? What are the theft charges? Was the theft related to a substance abuse? Or was the theft, we're starting to see in this moment, was the theft related to the underserved individuals in the communities that are actually victims to some other laws?
0: I'm just fascinated by this. So those technical violations, like you had mentioned before, it could be a dirty UA, it could be failing to report on time or being late by 10 minutes. Does that distort then the percentage of the recidivism rates that we're seeing reported?
1: Yes. <laughs> so my biggest argument about recidivism, let me tell you why I hate that word. Because recidivism falls as to failure of the individual, but has no failure of the system. Right. So it always puts it on the individual, right? This person failed. This person, we didn't have the resources for this person. We knew this person had mental health issues, substance abuse, but there was no connection to the community when they released. It was almost an accident waiting to happen, right? And our prayer is someone doesn't get hurt. But the system released him with those conditions of homelessness, no resource, no access to psychotropic medication, and all of that. So you're right. And the federal, my argument when I was at DOJ was that recidivism data is distorted simply because the federal government has never defined what recidivism is. We allow each state to determine their definition. So you're getting all this data that means different things coming from different places, and we just put it off. I always say a national level at DOJ, the national level was around 35%, right? And so I would always push back and say, so that means 65% of the people released is how we tell the story, right? Right. 65% of the people released did very well. So now I want to ask, what is that 35%? Is that 35% people who actually committed a new crime after being released, technical violations, or did I get released? Here's the crazy one that you see a lot. Did I just serve five years in prison? And because the child support system doesn't talk to the criminal justice system, Child support had an outstanding warrant because I stopped paying child support because I was in prison. And the day I get released from prison, I'm arrested for child support. But it goes against the recidivism rate of that state.
0: Yeah. And I know that certain politicians over the years, as well as the media, don't help because as soon as there's one potentially isolated, because it does happen, right? Obviously, people do get released and some people do commit heinous, horrendous and or crimes that put them right back in. And oftentimes that one instance, I I think back to, I think it was last year where someone was released after Mayor de Blasio had changed the system in terms of how long you can hold people. He went back out, punched a woman in the face, robbed her, beat her. And then obviously it's a horrendous and horrific thing, but it seems to be disproportionately exaggerated in the media, which then feeds into... The notion that we need to, again, we dehumanize people who are incarcerated and we need to do all we can to keep people in prison versus work to educate and rehabilitate them and mainstream them back into society.
1: And, you know, I think one of the missing elements, again, I always say media plays a huge part in this, right? Podcast media and one of the missing elements to that story, because just leadership led the what we call the Free New York campaign, which was the bail reform in New York. The one thing missing part that they did not share in the media is because of the prosecutors and the judges pushback back on bail reform, that person shouldn't have never been released in the way that the law was written. He had a probation violation. It was the actual pushback of the prosecutor and the judge that released him. But there were mechanisms in that law that says, here's where the judge used their discretion. If it's a previous history of violence, if it's a previous history of not showing up for court. And the judge and the prosecutors, in other cases as well, actually was just being very reluctant to show that this actual bill was no good. And it was almost as pushing people back out, hoping. And I I believe there was one individual that we were just outdone that he was even out. History of a serial DUI driver, alcoholic issues, no access to treatment, got arrested on a DUI and totally released, was on another probation, should have been held on probation for previous DUIs, and literally went back out, went back to the car that the police parked and didn't impound, like they typically do, and actually hit someone and committed the vehicular homicide within hours of the initial arrest from police, where he should have been detained. So when you're talking about being an advocate and pushing for stuff, you have that reluctance from the other part stakeholders in the system who actually have this conceived idea that people should be criminals, people should be jailed, jails are good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying everyone deserves to be on the streets. What I am saying is that if this system is accountable to the communities that have been most marginalized and most oppressed with the same access to resources to substance abuse, mental health, education, training, workforce, all of those things, you're pouring back into the community. Instead, we build the budgets of law enforcement and corrections and decreased resources and access in our communities to education and other programs, I believe it was in the late 1990s, Rikers Island had a capacity of 22,000, Aaron, and their budget was huge. If Rikers Island is now holding 4,500 people, why is their budget still increasing from when they had 22,000? It's the way corrections is. And so now you literally have over 10,000 officers at Rikers Island with 4,500. I was like, that's the best daycare. I would have loved to have two adults on my child at daycare at all times. But taxpayers are paying for that. And so understanding how we overspend and not pay under the name of safety, right? Under the name of public safety, we invest all these dollars, but nobody digs down into the numbers. Nobody digs down into... Why are our police departments having military-style tankers and military weapons? No one ever fights back. Here's my biggest question, and this is where I push down to the racial justice part of this. When you look at all of the interactions, as you said, media plays a role when there is a murder, when there's a crime, Black-on-Black crime. Media plays a role almost justifying that that person was a criminal, had a criminal history, you know, in, in the media. Black people always get their photo from being in jail, right? Their intake photo. But a Caucasian person gets a photo of the family. He was a family person. He was, I think the last shooting was he was having a bad day.
0: Oh, that was awful. Yeah. Or or they'll interview neighbors and the neighbor's like, seemed like a very quiet guy, kept to himself, you know, always smiled, you know, picked up my paper for me, right? (laughs) Yeah. It's a formula. (laughs) It's a formula. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I want to challenge you and your listeners to this. And I don't think we've ever put this together. When you look at the interaction of law enforcement and individuals who were possibly being stopped by the police to possibly be arrested and lost their lives. So I'm talking about Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, George Floyd, Sandra Bland, Dante Wright just the other day, Sam DuBose, Timothy Thomas. All of them were stopped for the crimes we call misdemeanors that everybody thinks is no problem to society. All of them were stopped because of misdemeanor crimes, meaning there was no threat to society. A traffic stop, a missing front license plate, right? Selling loose cigarettes on the corner. But an aggressive interaction happened, right? Because I don't want to talk to you about different things, but individuals end up losing their lives why is it, and we know misdemeanor charges came as the black codes at the abolishment of slavery to still be able to hold black people accountable and exploit the labor. Over the years, it's been easy for society to say, oh, it's just a misdemeanor. It's a minor charge. But for us, it still blocks how we get housing, how we get employment. But it is also starting to be The leading ability for police to racial profile, stop and frisk, and all of this that is resulting in people losing their lives. We call it racially charged. And I'm holding a panel discussion with Ben Crump on April 21st. And we're going to do a screening of a documentary. I'll send you the link so you can share it with your listeners. We're going to do a screening of this. And we do a close comparison of slavery and how slave catchers would chase people for these minor crimes. And how we're starting to see the same thing in police departments. We're shooting people in the back, chokeholding people. And we have to create these charges or these, these laws to say no chokehold. I did a call yesterday and there's a bill, one through federal government called the George Floyd bill. And I pushed back. It says the police can't use chokeholds. Well, George Floyd didn't even die of a chokehold. But you know what I'm saying? So why are you naming this bill after him? But let ask go deeper why do you need a law to say don't choke a person to death? Why do you need a law that says that, but you did not remove the qualified immunity in case I do choke you to death?
0: Right. That's right. Plus, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't most police departments start because they were specifically tasked to chase
1: down people who were enslaved? Thank you, Aaron. Yes. And we have not changed. And in some areas, That culture has not transformed, right? Why is it? And I always ask, have you? You know, I always challenge people, and I just ask this: Why is it black officers don't kill black people? Why is it when there's a police interaction and murder, why is it always a white officer and a black suspect? Why? Because black people don't fear black people. So does it come down to that the charge or the crime is being black in the U.S. that? Are actually fearful of us in some kind of way, or dehumanizes, and it's just really a question. And don't get me wrong; that's why I'm not—I never wanted to. I could never be because of my crime, but I never dreamed of being a police officer. I think there are certain fields for certain people, but we are actually starting to see the psychological of authority of some people who choose to be police departments. It's exerting some type of power over a certain group of people, and they are very gun ho I'm still struggling with how you pull your gun and not your taser and fire. But say I meant to pull my taser.
0: Right. Oh, yeah, that just happened. Right. Do you think that if there was, I mean, there are so many things that have to happen in order for reform to take place, right? I get that. But your comment about you rarely see, if at all, a black-on-black situation when it comes to police officer who murders someone who is Black, right? A Black piece of output right? So do you think that by actively recruiting more people of color into law enforcement, that would help? Or do you think that sometimes there's the Stockholm effect where it doesn't matter because police officers are blue before they're Black, right? And they, you know, they sometimes get accused of, you know, pulling the ladder up, right? So I'm just curious what you think about that. And I know that's a little bit to the side of your focus, but I've always thought about that. If there was a more active focus on diversity and inclusion in law enforcement, in addition to all the other reform that needs to take place.
1: I do believe there needs to be more diversity, especially to replicate the city that you're actually overseeing, right? But I also think the problem and what we've heard from officers who are in law enforcement, even here in my city, there's a I work with a lot of African American females. And just because of how the culture was here, it was, you know, my father was the police chief. I'm in line to be the chief. My son's gonna be in line to be the chief. This culture that we worked really hard to disband here in Cincinnati, in the public's view, through our consent degree over 20 years ago, we're starting to see it has turned inwardly within the department. And I'm still asking, why do we, they have two unions. They have a fraternal order of police where the Caucasian police go, and then they have the Sentinel police. There was a time that the Black and whites had to separate within a department, but I'm like, so over the years, nobody has come in and said, disrupt that and we are one unit. So they are divided within their own police department by race. So it's definitely going to filter out to the community as well.
0: Right. Now, I know that, just Leadership USA is working on multiple areas for reform. What would you say to an ordinary citizen, someone like me, what can we do to help with this movement if we're outside of you know, policy and we're not directly part of the system? We're still part of the larger system. We're still part of society. What do you say to the ordinary citizen and what we can do?
1: So one is to get involved. Everyone has a network who has friends, just like you're utilizing this podcast to actually educate your listeners. If there are some listeners who are saying, okay, you know, I had categorized this as criminal activity, but now that I'm starting to hear the underlying issue of how the sausage is made, right? I want to learn more. I want to have more conversations, but I also want some of my other friends to learn this. So I always say people get in touch with me. I do tea parties. We just have general conversations. But also go to our website to be updated, stay updated on some of the things that are going on nationally in other states. You know, we're fighting for reforms that actually get to the root cause. But we're also, I tell people, we're kind of ad hoc. During the Texas winter storms just happened, they didn't have heat inside the prison facilities. They couldn't cook food. The prison is supposed to cook food to feed and they made them buy prepared food from commissary where everyone don't have family to have money on their books to buy food so we collectively started adding funds to people's accounts so they could just have simple basic human needs or a basic need of food right the prison couldn't provide it so there are all kind of different things that are going on that normally traditionally happens in a very siloed world please join our website go to our website join our newsletter just Leadership, J-L-U-S-A.org, to sign up so you can be informed of what's going on. We do 2 million voices. We have people write us who are incarcerated, who've been incarcerated 20, 30 years, been incarcerated since they were 15 as juveniles, have lost every family member. Sometimes people need someone to write or just providing the resources that they're going to be coming home after 30 years. What are some of the resources in the community? There's a numerous ways people can get involved to learn more, help spread the message, but all just taking the first step and joining our newsletter and saying, hey, Deanna, I would like to have a more in-depth conversation with you or someone on your team.
0: And, you know, I think brand neutrality, speaking very broadly, is all but dead right now, which I love because I do think that brands, and I wish we weren't even calling companies, leaders, right? Companies are, are nothing. They're comprised of people, human beings who need to demonstrate leadership. And I do feel like, you know, you've got foundation partners like American Express, ACLU, it's Kunalam, my people, Foundation, you know, New York Community Trust, Ford Foundation, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Google. You have all these huge, powerful brands helping you. And I think that's important as well for those who are listening. And if you can talk a little bit about your Leading with Conviction initiative, because I think that's another place I think others can also be enlightened and also participate. And correct me if I'm wrong, but that is a cohort-based leadership training for those who are formerly incarcerated and trying to create more advocacy for them, community organizing, and to mainstream people to get them back into society in a productive and healthy way.
1: So yes, our Leading with Conviction, which I actually was a fellow in 2016 before coming on as the president's CEO, is definitely an investment in leaders. As formerly incarcerated people, most formerly incarcerated people never had traditional leadership training. And our leadership training is totally different. We focus on the individual and how they show up, how they communicate their messaging. Now you specifically identify what the advocacy or the organizing campaign and the issue that you're pushing. We educate them on the issues that you're pushing. And how do you communicate that to your elected officials? Most people who have been formerly incarcerated, let's just be honest come from marginalized, oppressed communities. They haven't had the formal political training of how to navigate their city hall, how to navigate their state reps, or to even understand, hey, I can't get a job in my state, but I got this training while I was in prison, right? I got trained to be a welder, but my law says you can't have a felony conviction as a welder. People don't even know. So why is prison training you if you can't get certified in that state? It was a waste of training and a waste of resources. But what is the harm of a person who has a criminal background who's trying to become a productive member being a certified welder? So how do you fight with your state reps to identify that? Who runs that workforce board at your state? So our training invests in people to teach them those skills. And we're always looking for corporate partners, people who have expertise, to come in and give us other ideas. If you're a communication specialist, one of the things I'm pushing right now is as our leaders are getting more spotlights and their voices are being elevated, how do you brand? How do you protect your brand as an individual that people see you as an advocate who is true and actually has integrity and honesty? So even talking about that I'm not a marketing specialist, right? But I know brand is important. And how do I communicate that to the other leaders who are coming up? So we always ask for people, if you have a skill set and you're saying, hey, I think this could help people, and may bring them some more knowledge, or we do do visitors when we do our trainings, they're virtual now, but if you want to sit in on a couple of our trainings, again, reach out to us and we allow people to kind of observe some of our trainings. Our leaders are awesome. We have one leader, formerly incarcerated, just became the first state rep in Seattle. We have another mother and daughter leaders who just created another AI assessment that just went to the public trade market. They're on the stock market now. Yes, we have... One gentleman, Boeing, just invested in him. He created almost an Instagram for people in prison because nobody writes letters no more, right? Everybody takes selfies. So he created an app that.
0: He was on my podcast.
1: Marcus? yeah. Marcus is one of my leaders. Teaching
0: people how to code. He learned how to code when he was in prison. Marcus is amazing. Yep.
1: Yeah. So just you have some leaders who are PhD professors. They started a network called the Formerly Incarcerated Graduate Network of people who have gotten their college degrees after incarceration. And when I look at these individuals. And even when I look at myself sometimes, and I think about the day I walked out of incarceration in 98, I mean, in 99, all I wanted was a job, Aaron, This was not the dream. And when I think about the expertise around policy that has come, when I look at other leaders who have committed crimes and changed their lives, it goes to the notion of we're not the same person something transformed. And if you're saying this system is supposed to be held accountable for that, why are you not willing to work with us and listen to us who are that 65%, right? Let's tell the story a different way. If 35% is recidivating, that means 65% is not. And why wouldn't you listen to us to say what worked? What changed? If
0: you don't mind me asking, and I talked to Marcus about this, so I'm glad that you mentioned him. Thank you for reminding me. I'm an incredible person. What was your experience like when you were incarcerated? How long, and what was that like? What were you thinking about when you woke up in the morning
1: so one of the things for me, my daughter, who will be twenty three in July, I actually when my incarceration started, had just had her I was definitely had a substance abuse problem. I was clean prior to. And I relapsed a week before I delivered her. Literally was clean for 18 months and relapsed. When I relapsed, it spiraled out of control. Ended up with a theft charge. Literally ended up with probation. And this is how fast the substance abuse wiltered. Went to court in November. Got sentenced to five years community supervision. Maintained. No dirt. Don't use drugs, anything. Violated probation by March and by May. Was sitting in a correctional facility. Facing a year in a women's facility, but the judge sent me to what's called, they call them community-based correctional facilities. It's almost an issue-based facility that has intense programming, but it's your last stop. Like, we'll give you one more chance before you actually go to prison to do this community-based correctional facility. And I was there for six months. But in that, the emotional turmoil of being separated from your children, the intensity of the program, this was my first incarceration, not knowing what to expect. And I think, you know, there's this visual that I can't get rid of. And I remember being transported from the county jail to this facility, not knowing what to expect. And nobody, you know, normally when you're in a hospital or something and people's getting ready to do something, even when you got your vaccine, you're going to feel a pinch. The alcohol's cold or different things. None of that. It's just, everything's a shock. And I remember getting there and they told me to go in the shower, strip, utilize this soap. And I think the most humiliating thing, Aaron, was when two women were in there who didn't even introduce themselves and just like, hey, we're here, asked me to squat, bend over and cough, totally butt naked.
0: To make sure you weren't hiding any contraband, basically.
1: Exactly. And I get it.
0: No, but, but it's humiliating. It's off. It's dehumanizing. It's terrible. It's awful. It's terrible.
1: Parents have not even talked about. This is the process, right? This is what we do. It was almost as if now that I look back, and don't get me wrong, me and those women. Now that I'm in this work, have become really good friends, and I tell them that, and they're like, "Are you serious?" I was like, "That was the worst damn thing in the world you could have done to a a young lady who had no clue." Yeah, I made a mistake, but and I was literally in a shower. Because, of course, you hear all these horror stories. Don't cry in prison. So it was easier to cry in the shower, right? Because the water from the shower is when your eyes. And then they walked out of this room, and I was still didn't know what to expect. Here's your uniform. Get dressed. And I'm like boo-hooing because I don't have a clue. Nobody's communicating with me on what this process is. You're just there. And I'll never forget sitting. They put me in this holding cell that was totally all concrete. And I'm just sitting there waiting on what the next step is. And they take me. in this community-based correctional facility, it was brand new. And the women's pod or section had just opened and the capacity was 50 women. But it was an open dormitory style. And I mean, I'm just, I walk in, I got my, you know, my blankets and my cover. They tell the guard, give her my name. She shows me where I'm going to sleep and tells me come back downstairs. So I'm sitting there totally isolated with 49 other women walking around me who've gotten used to this, evidently, or not so much that they've been incarcerated. But when I say I had no clue what to expect, and it always is this one person who kind of walks up to you and say, it's going to be okay. And kind of walking you through the steps, right? But other than that, when I say I had never been so terrified in my life. Because I just didn't know what to expect. And I knew, and you're always saying it's your fault. Yep, you made a decision. You're being held accountable. But what is the trauma associated with that? And I look at my daughter because of the way we couldn't visit, that even when I returned home and my daughter was nine months old, and because my cousin took care of her, thank God my cousin stepped in, because of the lack of visitation, my daughter had literally bonded with my cousin. And was literally pulling from me in fear, holding on to my cousin as her mother.
0: Yeah, that's awful. So it's interesting. If you reverse time, let's just say you still had the same experience, but the onboarding, the intake was different. It was more humane. They told you what to expect. It sounds like, though, that last stop is potentially a good program because you learned skills and you were educated, and it was rehabilitative, right? So that program that you're talking about is more in line with what you're pushing for versus kind of hardcore incarceration or going immediately into prison for something that, if I'm hearing you correctly, you had a substance abuse problem and you stole something. And I'm not saying so what, but it's like, you know, everything needs to be proportional, right?
1: And here's the bigger question. You know, I always ask the question of, man, now that where I am today, the incarceration wasn't the worst part. It's the collateral consequences of having that felony conviction that has created the barriers for me in my life that has made me have to fight, right? So because- It's
0: a a stamp, you're stamped, you're marked, yeah.
1: So because of that substance abuse problem, if there had been access to treatment in the community, or could I have done that inpatient, because looking at it as an inpatient program, humanized, Without the felony conviction, would the community have been better served? And would I, in society, not had the collateral consequences of having to get a pardon from the governor? You know, and I always laugh, even in my life, when I get jobs or I'm hired by the federal government or by a national organization, I still can't apply for an apartment at a management company. My criminal record, 22 years, comes up. But, and I always push back. I have two mortgages. I'm a landlord. Not one of my mortgage applications asked me, was I convicted of a felony?
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: So I could be your neighbor and have property next to you, but you don't want me to live in a community that's renting. What is the irony of that? You know what I'm saying? Think about it. A mortgage application never has asked me, have I been convicted? All they ask me is, what is my credit score? So, and can you afford this mortgage, right? But renting an apartment, Being a federal government employee, my criminal record comes up and blocks me 23 years later with a governor's pardon.
0: So I was going to say, so the only way, because you worked for Obama's Justice Department, so you needed to get a pardon in order to get cleared. Well, no, I had a
1: pardon years ago. Okay. So and Obama did a fair hiring policy that you need to look at the time since the person committed the crime. The what
0: the crimes were, right?
1: To the yes. job And different things of that nature. I just happened to have already been issued. I had applied for a part years ago because I couldn't find housing. I would get certain jobs and I couldn't get hired because of that. Would have the skill set. So I started having employers who wanted to hire me, write me letters as I was building this pardon application to show, you know, she has the skill set we want. We want to hire her. But based on our policies of not hiring people with criminal backgrounds or people with felonies, we cannot hire her, which justified that my crime was becoming a problem. Although I had did all this extra work, I had gotten college degrees, I had maintained, have gotten custody of my children. So I was able to start showing the transition of my life. But this was causing a huge problem, especially in the Midwest.
0: I want to go back to kind of proportionality right there are some people are going to be listening to this or say okay i get it deanna's story is a little bit different no one was impacted this is in many ways a victimless crime if anything deanna was hurting herself right her family and she recovered she did all the hard work to recover there are people who have willfully or were accessory to murder there are people who raped who are pedophiles Are there certain people who do belong in prison and belong in prison for life?
1: I think we have to have a system that holds people accountable. But I also want to challenge your listeners to look at how we charge people, right? We have women who have been in relationships with men and have been in abusive relationships and actually protected themselves one day and was tired. And that man ended up dying, right? But there's a of violence. We have women who have been in relationships with men who their outside activities has resulted in someone taking their lives. And because she was there, she's accessory to murder, right? Accessory. Uh I think the biggest one that, you know, as my career started, that drove me crazy was how we label sex offenders. We put everybody in this catch all. And even myself, I had this bias. If you said sex offender, my mind immediately went to you violated a child or you violated a woman.
0: That's exactly right. That's exactly where my head goes. That's
1: where my mind went until I left. Then when I worked in a maximum security prison that actually housed the majority of sex offenders in a certain state, and I started reading case laws, and you would have a guy who was 19 and a girl was 16. They're now married. But because the relationship started or she had a child, he's a sex offender. You would have a guy who actually, public drunkenness in college using a bathroom outside and get arrested in this state. He was labeled a sex offender. So it would be all of these different things that people, we put in this one little basin, right? Of sex offender, whereas in society, it scares us to death when you say that.
0: Yeah. Label. Yeah. No, no, I totally get that. I'm really more talking about what you, we originally said, which was convicted, repeated sex offenders, true sex offenders. I mean, look, I mean, I run almost every day and thank God I haven't been caught going outside in the bathroom in in the bushes in public land, but I do, you know, but I get what you're saying. It's different. It's uneven. And I ask this, I do ask this from a good place because I believe most people are good, but there are some people, I believe most people can be rehabilitated, but sometimes they can't be for different reasons. It might be because they have mental illness and it's actually safer for them to be, not on the street, but to be in a place that they can't hurt someone or themselves. So that's the reason why I'm asking because there are, still, there are still some elements, but I don't think it's the majority of people who are incarcerated. I still think it's the minority.
1: But I think you brought up something really good, Aaron. The system has to figure out what are the elements of the individuals who do need to be for the safety of society and for themselves. And then what are we gonna do for them there? Do we just still human warehouse them? Or do we provide treatment? I am not, and I'll say this, and I say probably as a formerly incarcerated people, people die when I say this. Prisons are needed for some individuals. If you've never been to jail or prison, you haven't seen some of the heinous crimes that people have done. And as you said, yeah, there are elements of mental illness and substance abuse, but what is the humane, just because I'm in prison, do I need to be treated inhumanely? or not as a human? And I know people are going to say, well, they didn't treat their victim that way. But did we even dig down to find out where they learned that behavior? Society always focuses on the crime. We never dig down to find out, where did this person learn that behavior? Where did this by DMX? If anyone, I know DMX just passed, but I've been really listening. And I believe, you know, for me, DMX Tupac really wrote about their life. There's a song called Angel. On every album, he had a conversation with God, but there's this one song and he recreates his life and his thinking as a young person and the treatment that was received. And because he was a star, nobody went back to look at the treatment of what was the pain that brought this music lyrics out in this story that was being told. And I challenge people to realize that people try to find an escape. Music was his escape. He couldn't get rid of his demons. But music was an escape, and people traditionally tell us a story before something else, that big episode that happens.
0: Yeah. And aren't we all like just super complicated, kind of multi-layered people? I mean, DMX is an interesting example. You know, may his memory always be for a blessing, of course. And on the surface, you could say, well, this is a guy who's had demons his entire life. It's a constant battle. They won, unfortunately. And, you know, oh, so he was caught speeding, going 110 miles an hour with his four-year-old daughter in 684. You know, he was, you know, impersonating a police officer, chasing someone down at JFK airport, right? But there's a much more wholesome story as to the why that none of us really look into. And because he's an artist, we're able to look back now and see him for who he really was and his struggles and his demons. And you talked about most people haven't been to prison or jail. so unwillingly, I've gone to one, willingly, I went to the other. And I want to talk about the willingly, which is, you know, a few years ago, and some of my listeners have heard this story, we we had an incredible guest on, a woman who runs Puppies Behind Bars. I'm sure you've heard about the program, but basically, it's to give inmates an opportunity. I don't even know if I should, do we call people inmates anymore? I don't know.
1: Currently incarcerated people. Currently
0: incarcerated people. Right. Okay. So, currently incarcerated people, the opportunity to bond with and provide an opportunity to get back to society. So they live with these puppies for two years. They train them about a hundred commands. And then the puppy then graduates and gets transitioned to someone else who's in need. Typically it's a first responder suffering with PTSD or it's a vet. And oftentimes it's a police officer. So think about the multi-layers of a police officer going into a maximum correctional facility. And I went, so... the first time ever, I went to the Bedford Correctional Facility, maximum security prison for women. And I spent a day with hundreds of incarcerated women. At first, I was wondering whether or not I was moved because, I'm just being perfectly honest, because there are women and I felt a different level of empathy because there are women. And this is not me being chauvinist. This is just me being human. And I was, you know, feeling something different. But I created and I formed bonds with a lot of these women over the course of that day during graduation. And I saw them for really who they are, and which is human beings. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, and I think I'm not the only one to say that, I used to be this person who's like, put them in prison, whether they're accessory or not, I don't care, but they need to stay in there as long as possible, whatever. And that was a huge moment for me, and I can't stop thinking about it even two years later. It moved me, it changed me. And I remember leaving the facility, thinking I could leave and they can't and the look on their face, and many of them, they told their stories. Some of them did get out. Others are there for life, but they were telling their stories. And most often their stories were, you know, wrong place, wrong time. And or sometimes it was, you know, they were very young, they had an addiction problem. They weren't who they really were and they did something horrible, terrible, right? Does that mean they they don't deserve to be rehabilitated or have another shot or give back? or be a meaningful, productive person in society? No, I mean, it was very moving to me. And then, you know, I had Grayston on, I'm sure you're familiar with Grayston Bakery. And I'm like all about open hiring now, because that's like a new-ish concept. And I know that this is probably something that you're a big advocate for as well. And I just think that, look, I am eternally an optimist. I definitely see things very clearly, but I do feel that with everything that's going on right now, there's more movement. And, and I'm curious if you agree with this. I feel like there's more movement towards positive reforms across and throughout the system. And we have a lot of work to do. And I hate it when people say that, but it's true in the states. <laughs> but I do feel like there is not just a reckoning, but an awakening of allyship, people like me and others who can make a difference. I feel like we're headed in the right direction. It's just, you know, it's going to take a little while and a lot of work and a lot of very honest conversations like this one to get there.
1: Yeah. I totally agree. I think we're moving in the right direction. And it is utilizing this moment of awakening, right? But you said something very important that I think people don't pay attention to when you talked about you visited Bearford Correctional and what you saw and what you experienced. And we had traditionally been saying restorative justice is a program, right? We're gonna work on restorative. I believe restorative justice is a philosophy. It's a philosophy that individuals are worthy, that we can restore individuals to some sense, because most victims, even family members of people who have been victims of heinous crimes, in the beginning, they're angry. But years later, they always say incarceration for that person is not the solution. How do I make sure that this person doesn't do this, that another family has to experience the pain my family had? What should we be doing for that person? What should we be investing in that person and giving that person so that they still can be a human being and a productive member in life because they were young? But how do we make sure it doesn't happen to another family member? So I'm even watching family members of victims and perpetrators come together on speaking platforms to talk about the healing process. I even saw the other day a previous gang member who his. Shooting victim, whose par- he paralyzed, on a stage together, talking about this, and you know she's been paralyzed for thirty years because of his actions thirty years ago when he was seventeen. But through restorative justice, the healing, and actually society having this violent outburst of younger men in the streets, they're utilizing this togetherness to talk about it from a victim, what a victim feels like when you pull the trigger but also the guilt and the shame you have to live with and the incarceration. So nobody tells people the real story, right? We, we have young men in the street, but normally we throw them away. That's why life without parole is being overturned in states. We have people who went to prison as juveniles getting out at 68 years old because the Constitution is saying if research shows a juvenile's brain doesn't develop till 25 and they committed this crime in sixteen, seventeen, and we threw them away with life without parole. What are we really saying? So when you look at this, the reforms, that's a reform, right, of how we traditionally handled individuals with those crimes. Other reforms of, do we actually continue to tear families up? As you said, yeah, there were women who actually committed heinous crimes, but a majority of women are in prison for who they loved.
0: Correct. And there's a power dynamic they could not get out of. Yeah, no, I get that. It's I'm just so conflicted because I do believe in restorative justice. And then I think about this cop who murdered George Floyd. And can you imagine, can you just imagine if the jury came back and like, you know what, we're going to pursue a restorative justice path. And I don't think that's fair. I think he should never see the light of day. And and I'm sorry to say that. But I just think, especially now that we have see so much more than what we saw, from bystander video, we actually see body cam. We hear from the experts and how he had been dead for two minutes and his knee was still on George Floyd's neck. And I'm again, I'm not trying to like, <laughs> I'm not trying to be critical of it because I do believe in sort of justice, but I don't think it works for everybody or in every situation. This is where I get very, you know. I
1: think the challenge is, Aaron, what you just said. So for two minutes, this man was dead up under you. This man right. crying for his life, he was already constrained. So was that a heinous act of murder? In my eyes, yes.
0: A hundred percent it was.
1: And it's videotaped, right? So does that get a different response in someone that actually commits another type of crime? I think it's a case by case, but I do think, and God forbid, there has to be a level of accountability. Cause what you're saying to black people, even with evidence on film, and we've saw it in other cases the guy who got shot in the back walking away from the police officer to get in his car, no threat, but oh, he's not, he was scared for his life. You followed him. But if this jury comes back, what you're saying to black people, it doesn't fucking matter if you got it on tape. It doesn't matter who your witnesses are. It doesn't matter that his boss, who's African American, said that was not policy and procedure. Mm-hmm. Their lives are not valued.
0: Right. That's what they're saying.
1: Why we have the moniker Black Lives Matter. Because over and over, even with video, you're telling us our lives don't matter. And now we're in a trial where we're hearing all of expert testimony, all of this. If they come back and say that, when you're talking about digging the knife even harder into the unworthiness of a whole race of what this country thinks of us.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I'm glad to hear you say that because the world is not binary, right? It's not one or the other. Everything is situational. And that's one of the big takeaways I'm getting from this conversation, which I very, really, really appreciate, which is you know, if you just paint everybody with one or two broad policies, you're going to disenfranchise and marginalize 90% of the folks in that population, because every circumstance is different, every human being is different, and we need to look at every situation differently. And sometimes there needs to be restorative justice, more often than not. And other times, there needs to be a harsher level of accountability that might be life in prison. And the other thing I'll say, it's so funny, people as they age, right? Turned 50 in September of last year.
1: Don't say that I'm a little over 50. You made that sound like we're old. here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. I'm just getting started. Yeah. But I, you know, it's interesting. I've witnessed people historically get more conservative in their views as they get older. And I've actually gone the other way. I've become far, far more progressive. I've always been left-leaning, but socially so much more progressive. And it's been just, you know, an interesting journey for me. And I say that because for the longest time, I was a huge supporter of the death penalty. And it's because I used to internalize a loved one or a close friend being a victim. And then how would I feel? And now, over the last three, four years, I've completely changed my mind. And I've flipped the other way.
1: That played a role of seeing how many people
0: are innocent. Yeah.
1: And I'm looking at these states, right? That are the Innocence Project. I I work closely with them. And I'm looking at all these cases being overturned, 25, 30 years incarcerated. And then I sit and I say, So how many did we kill? How many did we kill?
0: And what percentage of those folks are people of color?
1: Exactly. (laughs) 95%. Who pushes that button on death penalty? Knowing for sure you have the right person? like it's the worst thing, but I'm sitting here. These cases, especially out of Philadelphia, I think Philadelphia is having the highest turnover rate because of prosecutorial misconduct from years ago. So, how many cases of death did they carry out if we're finding all these cases are being overturned for DNA and other things where the prosecutor withheld information or coerced confessions, all sorts of oh, things? Yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's not stopping. That's the crazy part. We're still. Every other month, we're hearing about somebody who was released through the Innocence Project and another trial.
0: And the reason why I mention all this is because, especially for listeners who are kind of, you know, boring, you know, cisgender, straight white men like me, it's not too late to change, you (laughs) know? And and again, I had a little bit of a head start because I've always been left-leaning, but really in my mid-40s is when things started to kind of come together. And in part, it's because you just have to be able to kind of open your mind and read and talk to other people who are not like you, who have different backgrounds, who don't look like you, and who come from different parts of the country. And I just think it's so important. And I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. We could be talking for hours and hours. And I only got to like 10% of my notes, but this has just been amazing. And I thank you for your leadership and everything you do. And I just wish The world had more people in it like you. I really do.
1: A lot of us out here. But you know, one of the things I do want to share with your listeners, one of the eye opening things we're starting to see is on college campuses, as I said, formerly incarcerated are getting PhDs, we're teaching classes. But the exposure of when we have this one-on-one conversation, a lot of formerly incarcerated have written books that have been utilized in college classes. And then that person comes talk and the awakening you know, college is that moment of awakening from everything we thought we knew to really expanding our horizon, and we're seeing this huge awakening on college campuses, as you said. So, how do we how do we address this? I'm not trying to change anything your parents taught you. I'm just trying to level the playing field to say I am a human.
0: Yeah. Well, when I look at our kids, you know, you said your daughter is in her twenties. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So I've got a 20 year old and I'm a 17 year old and. I look at how they're being educated and what they're interested in their point of view. And it really warms my heart because I think now they've had the benefit of having, you know, very good educators and not everybody has that. But I do think that this next generation, call it whatever you want. Everybody likes to put monikers on, on generations, Gen Z, whatever. they super, I hate the word woke because it's become like a bad word now, but super informed, very open-minded, very progressive. And I think it's awesome. I think it's great.
1: It pulls me away. They're they're just not, like, you know, they're making decisions and figuring it out for themselves. And it was like, oh my god, and, and I love it. I love watching it. I'm with you. It warms my heart. And to me, this generation is the more collective generation that can collaborate, as you said, allyship in different things, make things happen. That's what I'm seeing. And I think that's what we traditionally hadn't seen, right? Black people had to march by themselves and different things. You had a few people who actually would play ally shit who actually jeopardized their lives. But now it's such a collective effort that is huge. It really warms my heart.
0: Yeah. And at the same time, for our cohort, it requires courage and conviction. And that's one of the things, you know, I try to push every day, whether it's my role. As a community leader or it's my role as a business leader it's really really important that we surface these things and we don't let people who are naysayers either quiet or loud knock us down it's just we can't let that happen
1: yep i appreciate you thank you so much thank you so god bless
0: you your family everything that you do thank you so much for being on and i wish you all the best And i can't wait to have you back on
1: soon. yes i can't wait thank you aaron This has been an episode of Brand On Purpose with Aaron Quickin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of companies, organizations, and people who make it their mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing production team, including Lindsay Hand, Dara Cawthron, Julie Strickland, and Nina Valdez. Learn more
0: about our show and sponsorship opportunities at brandonpurpose.com. Learn more about our host at aaronquitkin.com.